this episode of the podcast is brought to you by Anchor. If you don't know what Anchor is and you're thinking about starting a podcast, you should probably find out what Anchor is because Anchor is a free way to host your podcasts. It also gives you creation tools like the ability to record yourself, record with other people, edit as well, and do it from your phone or your computer. You don't need to go buy fancy tools to start. You can start with Anchor. And you can hit the nice distribute button, and it's going to send it out to all the places you want it to be, like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, and more. In addition to that, you can make money from your podcast with no basic listenership. In other words, if you only have 10 people because you're just starting, you can still monetize that. It's really hard to find a better place to start. So download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm and get started on the crazy podcast journey. Okay, everybody, I'm popping in here because I kind of made a promise that I might have a little something special for you today. Merry Christmas. And, uh, What I'm going to leave here is going to be five episodes. These are episodes that I originally recorded back in about January. And this was when the show was something very different, when I was still doing this under further questions. And I thought maybe I was going to do a show about the paranormal. And I had on five friends. And these are five episodes. They haven't been living anywhere since then. So I decided, what better day than today? to drop these into your feed. So if something sounds a little out of date and we talk about things before COVID, well, that's because this was before COVID. So enjoy the episodes. Remember what the world was like back then, about a year ago. And uh, I'll talk to you tomorrow when I come back with a new episode. Just finished watching episode seven of In the Trail of UFOs. Crap, I should have sent you eight. I forgot I only sent you through seven. Everything you guys do, it's like, I, I see where, you, where you've gone and I'm like, wow, that was such great production quality. And the next one comes out and it's like, not just a movement forward, you guys always seem to leap forward. And I thought that this one was just by far the best thing that you've done. Oh, wow. Thank you. It's fantastic. and I mean, it's such depth too, you know, like maybe that has something to do with it as well. Being able to go eight episodes... Yeah, there's a lot more planned for this too. Yeah, it's an ongoing thing, right? It's going to continue going. Everything's changed. I mean, we can talk about this on the show, but everything's kind of changed as far as like how it's ongoing. It's it's kind of altered because originally it was going to be like each season, quote unquote season was going to be a different topic. Now we're basically like launching multiple ongoings at once. So on the trail of UFO season two is going to come out uh, probably next year and on the trail of Bigfoot season two is going to come out next year. And then we're also going to do an on the trail of the Lake Michigan Mothman special. And then there's probably going to be on the trail of haunts or hauntings coming out um, fairly soon too. So we just have to, there's a lot of like production things we have to figure out as far as doing all that. Cause I can't, I obviously can't shoot all of that, Um, but we have people that are involved that we could, we'll figure it out. Something along the lines of what you did with On the Trail of Champ? Um, 
Yeah, to an extent. The problem with Champ was that I had no involvement in it at all. So it's just like after everything was done already, basically. Yeah, and I kind of tried to help steer things. And Alexander did an amazing job because obviously he kind of like set the stage for what we would do going forward. But um, I, I also, when I watched that one, I feel like it, there's something about it. It doesn't feel like an SDM production. And it could also just be that his budget was non-existent and he was trying to do everything by himself. So I just want to be more involved in the post-production side of of anything else that I'm not there to shoot. For sure, I'm involved. I'm basically going to do everything for On the Trail of Bigfoot again. So I'm planning on shooting, narrating, being in it, all that stuff. And then uh, UFOs and uh, the hauntings thing will probably... I'll be involved, but I'm not sure yet to what extent. Well, I can imagine the reason the Bigfoot one was because Bigfoot, as far as topics, as far as I can tell, is your baby. Like, that's your big topic. Yeah. Are we recording? Yeah. Sorry. Oh, cool. <laughs> cool. <laughs> I just wanted to make sure because I was going to, uh, yeah, we, I don't know. I don't know when this episode is dropping, but we're going to drop the announcement pretty soon. But yeah, the, it's definitely the subject I can't get away from. So I keep coming back to it. And, um, uh, we're in the process of like planning how to do it because UFOs and Bigfoot are really different. Like UFOs, we could do a dozen seasons just like season one, like structure wise, and you wouldn't run out of things to talk about. With Bigfoot, you're going to run out of stuff pretty quick. Like I actually feel like we sort of said everything we needed to say about the history of the entire phenomenon in the in the first season. So what what does like a season two and a three and four or whatever look like? And so um, I've kind of narrowed that down to being more um, localized. So each episode is going to be sort of in a specific region. Um, so we're in the process of planning the first couple episodes of season two. And it, it looks like um, we're doing one of two things. I'm not, I, these are being locked down but the first it's i know it's going to be a two or three parter that starts it off um and it's either going to be alaska or uh, a trip up the bc coast on a boat which we're talking to some people about doing so we really want to get out into like areas that are sort of the, the original bigfoot habitat and then and then sort of come back to our roots so i'm sure there'll be some i'm not yet positive what the states are going to be that we are involved in in season two but i know i want to hit west virginia um because we for whatever reason we haven't done anything with with west virginia in any of the on the trail of stuff yet um so i want to get to west virginia and um there's a researcher or investigator there named les odell and uh i think him and i are just going to go out for like a few days in some active areas and um see if anything happens and then also you know like i'll be it won't the show won't become just me like with night vision running around in the woods <laughs> we have plenty of that <laughs> yeah it'll, it'll still be the the stuff that sort of sets us apart from that kind of stuff but um i do want to get more investigative in general with on the trail of moving forward i mean on the trail is the lake michigan mothman that that project's going to be very uh very much like a look at in investigation like like you like paranormal investigation because i just don't feel like we've done that yet something more akin to like a hellier um 
I haven't seen Hellier, but I oh, I would I would say it's um you know like what I always go back to are the shows that I love are like the the seventies and and some of the early eighties docs. Um, there's one that was about uh, Robert W. Morgan looking for for Bigfoot at Mount St. Helens, and it's been it's weird because it's been reworked into like multiple titles so every now and then i see footage from it popping up in some other doc from like the 70s or 80s i never heard of so that's kind of weird but it was actually called on the trail of or in search of bigfoot but it wasn't part of in search of it was just called in search of bigfoot and it was like this 80 minute long doc about robert w morgan and his crew looking for bigfoot near mount st helens and um, they end up getting driven away by forest fires and it's really interesting because nothing happens like they're right. the entire doc is them like running around looking for Bigfoot and not finding anything, but there's something so honest about it. And I've always loved that. And so I want to see that kind of like approach to, to a paranormal investigation. And it's more about like, like Tobias and Emily Wayland are going to be our, our central figures in that in on the, on the trail of Lake Michigan Mothman. And they're going to talk to witnesses and, you know, other investigators and stuff like that. So typical SDM, but more investigative, I think. I feel like there's this new wave of, in a way, like you said, going back to old wave of, uh, I'm hesitant to always use the word paranormal because I feel like there's kind of, when I say the word paranormal, people usually just automatically go to ghosts. Sure. the unreal is a word that I'll use. Um, but, you know, just dealing with this kind of stuff lately in the last, I'd say everything after Unsolved Mysteries until recently, everything has been sensationalized. And not that Unsolved Mysteries wasn't, but it was also the first time that this stuff was really mainstream other than in search of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm obsessed with Unsolved Mysteries too. Oh, me too. You know, I've gone through the Prime, gone yeah. through every episode on Prime about 12 times. Yeah, me too. Like, well, we can probably have conversations about episodes. <laughs> yeah, I, my favorite. My I can tell you, my favorite recreation is the uh, the um, Hudson Valley Triangle episode. Oh where yeah, they get, where, where they get into the Black Triangles, and that was like one of the thrills for me about making on the trail of UFOs, getting to do Hudson Valley. But you know, after the fact, I was like, man, that was that was fun, and we did a good job, and like Santino didn't, you know, some nice effects for our Hudson Valley thing, but um. It was no unsolved mystery. <laughs> <laughs> well, I always go back to my first thing when I think of it is Matthew McConaughey when he's, uh, I can't remember the name of the guy right now, but uh, Gene Bell is the guy that kills him. And he's in at one episode, give me your keys. I'm like, oh, yes, you learned how to act later. <laughs> yeah. But that was the beauty of weird, it, too. It is. And there's a weird. Um, timelessness to those episodes. There's still, see, there's there was something really unsettling about that show because I can remember as a kid being at my grandma's house because my my family didn't have TV, like my, my grandparents had cable, and I'd be over there and I would I would leave the room if if that show was on. Even the theme song freaked me out. Oh yeah, as a kid, and um, there's something still that holds up about it. Like some of those recreations are really unsettling there's the one about the girl who tried to tell everyone that she was being like stalked and threatened and no one believed her and oh, the one that she, they found in the ditch yeah yeah they end up finding her well i think she was 
She was, was tied she? with her hands behind her back. Yes, right? that's it. Yeah. No one. But then they tried her. to say it was suicide. Yeah, they claimed it was suicide. <laughs> <laughs> welcome, yeah, we just, everybody. Just, welcome to nerding out yeah. on unsolved mysteries. <laughs> I was gonna say we should just change this into a an unsolved mysteries. I could seriously so. talk about this for days. Like, yeah, I know. It's, no it's, joke. It's really good, and it's funny because um, um, I heard that the whoever owns the rights to Cosgrove Media. Okay, so I heard that that there's like a a couple, there's there's two men or something that are like at the at sort of the center of all that, and they supposedly really do not l- like the paranormal episodes. And so I had heard um, someone I know in Hollywood was actually trying to get the rights to make the show, but they were pitching it very heavily as like a not a paranormal show, but but there would be a much more of a focus on the paranormal. And I guess that was like a huge turnoff for, for what did you say, Cosgrove? Cosgrove, I'm not sure if they still Cosgrove. own the rights to it. They did. Okay. Um, but then I can't, I'm totally blanking on the name of the people who finally got it. Yeah. Onto um, Netflix or whatever. Film Rise. Oh, Film Rise. Okay. Oh, okay. Yeah. But someone, didn't they just announce that someone's like doing new episodes? I thought we had, I thought someone had announced that recently. I hope so. I mean, there yeah. was that re that, that revival briefly in the early two thousands with Forrest Whitaker. Yeah, oh, I don't um, think I saw that. I saw the Dennis Farina. Yeah, and that was terrible. <laughs> it was like yeah. the they cut everything in like a quarter of the of the you know they cut out as much of the reenactment as possible. Right. They lost all the charm. Farina is awesome, but yeah, yeah that, was, that, that was that was the that only thing. thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I started those those hit. Prime first, so I started going through those, and I was like, "Oh, this is unsatisfying, painful." Yeah. So, did you? Um, sorry, you're you're like I've only talked to maybe like two people, and I've you might be the first person I've talked to where you've watched the whole almost the entire on the trail of. So, what did you? Can you give me like give me what you? Well, first of all, the first note that I have that goes along with what we're saying right here mm-hmm. is the reenactments in episode one totally gave me the unsolved mysteries vibe. Oh, cool! Yeah. And yeah. I'm using reenactments with air quotes because it's not really, there's not people reenacting. Right. The special yeah. effects. You know, yeah, the, this one we were, we were bridging. I mean, it's very different from on the trail of Bigfoot because on the trail of Bigfoot, I mean, there's some, some like supposedly spooky footage or something whenever someone's telling a story, but it's, it, I wanted to stay away from recreations with Bigfoot and I probably will even more so with season two. Um, but with this one, I almost wanted to bridge the gap between like our movies and on the trail of and still keep it, you know, don't put like actors in it uh, or even or even like full blown animation, like what we do with the movies. But like do do something that was like a POV kind of perspective thing. So good. I'm glad Santino did most of the the effect shots for the recreations. There's a few there's a few different ways we did the recreations. There was. Santino doing like the animation in that one, especially when Dan Weiss is telling his story and it cuts to like the, the, uh, the candy ship is what Santino calls it, um, <laughs> in the sky. Uh, that was, that was all Santino, um, which is like a blend of CG. I think it, it actually is just CG on, you know, real, real shots and then he makes it look cool. Um, and then there's, there's actually just some lights. Like I did a lot of shots of, you know, cause eventually you're, this is the most expensive thing we've ever done. 
Right. And, and yeah. And at a certain point money ran out and I, and I was shooting like these, I bought these little lights on, this is some real inside baseball stuff that no one's going to care about. Um, I bought these lights on like Amazon and then I would take them in my office and turn off all the lights and film them on the ground doing different things. <laughs> and then I, would uh, put those over, like I, I usually like sort of comp them into other shots to make it look like a light in the sky or whatever. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't, but I think it does a, a decent job. It has a very like 1980s effect to it. And then weirdly enough, I actually did some of the effects shots myself as well. I think, well, hands down, I would say one of my other notes that I had coming in was best special effects I've seen in anything like this. Really? They just felt genuine. Oh, wow. And felt like you guys were trying to push it too far, mm-hmm. but it also didn't have a cheesy vibe to it at all. It was just exactly where it needed to be. Yeah, episode six is... Um, there's like 40 effect shots in that one episode alone. And Santino did... Santino did like... 12 i think and then i did close to 20 that's the ghost lights episode right yeah that's the spook lights yeah and then i did a bunch on episode i did two of the recreations on episode seven there's only one in the entire series that i will proudly like say hey i did that one and that's (laughs) when um that's the gary tribert abduction story where he's talking about how he was a kid and walked up this hill and saw a ufo over a gravel pit Um, I did that one myself and made it look like it's like eight millimeter or something. I I like the way that one turned out. Yeah. I mean, like there's also something to be said about how you, there's a cohesiveness to all the episodes, but there's also an individuality to the style of each episode. Oh yeah. This is awesome. Thank you. (laughs) Just that. These are, these are the things I never get to hear from, from anyone. (laughs) Like, like especially this early in the game, because you're you're one of like maybe eight people who see the whole thing. I noticed I was going through and looking at the underneath on the YouTube, and I was like, it was like zero views. I'm like, am I really like other than the staff, the first person to see this? Yeah, it's like it's mostly us and my son and uh, my two year old son, and uh, and then I send it to, to some friends. I don't know how many views we've had on them. I gotta watch that stuff because sometimes those links get away from us and people will share stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, when we made on the trail of Bigfoot, someone that was in the final episode decided it would be cool to just share it on his Facebook page, even though it was oh. two months away from coming out. And I went to bed and when I woke up, there were 300 views on it. And I was like, oh, you no. have to be kidding me. It wasn't even a finished cut. Um, so now I'm like real paranoid about it. Check on episode three then, because you have like forty views on that one. That's fine. That like that's that's within the realm of possibility because a lot of times that's me or you know like that's <laughs> just checking I'll, it I'll, over. Yeah, I go I back the same through thing. and rewatch everything <laughs> and double check and triple check everything, quadruple check. But yeah, the the um the effects stuff on 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 this one is is pretty impressive. Given, I mean, even though it's the most expensive thing we've we've done, I think. Episode six alone probably has more effect shots in it than most of our films. Like most of our 90, you know, not 90, most of our like 60 to 70 minute movies. So, and that's a 27 minute episode. Yeah, there's, in the first one, there's that Unsolved Mysteries vibe, but there's also like a very uh, Casey Neistat vibe to it as well. Oh, cool. I do that. I, that's, that's who I watch. Um, Casey, uh, Peter McKinnon, mm-hmm. um, this guy Levi Allen, who who does a 
a YouTube channel called Left Coast, who I actually... Oh, I know that guy too. Yeah, I'm going to try to reach out to him because I really want to see if I can get him to DP something. Like maybe... maybe I, I told my wife this the other day and she's like, you're insane. But I, I want to reach out to him <laughs> and see if I can get him to like be, be cinematographer on like a season of On the Trail of Bigfoot. He's doing think, Squarespace commercials now. Yeah, yeah, he is. Yeah. Hi, friends. Yeah. That's how he started all of his videos. Yeah, he does. Hi, friends. He's, seems so nice. I know. Um, it's the Canadian thing. Mm-hmm. And he lived in that van for a while. Yeah. Yeah. That, well, that was cool. Recently, he started talking about that. And because uh, my wife is really hard on van life people. And uh, so when that happened, she, she thought it was comical. And then I, he did a, a video recently and explained that that was because, um, that was just simply because of like necessity, because of the way that their jobs worked and everything. So I was like, oh, that's cool. Like if I was younger and didn't have a kid, I'd probably live in a van. Mostly because I'd be, probably be you know, poor or something. <laughs> My it's not that option. different than these tiny house people either, is it really? Yeah. No. But yeah I'm obsessed that's, with tiny houses. So <laughs> My mom is. I bought her like three of those books. Boy, I'm really uh, rambling about nonsense here. But yeah, That's they, exactly what I want. <laughs> I want you to relax and have fun. The nice stat, and that's cool that you you said that. I mean, I I tried to to do my own thing with that style because, like, the, my only other experience editing that way was uh, Bray Road Beast, and um, with Bray Road, I was watching a lot of Fincher, so like that was I was I mean I I was into Left Coast and all that stuff at the time, but I think I was watching more of like Fight Club and stuff like that to try to figure out the rhythm of, of that kind of editing because it's really not my it, first of all, it's not really my thing. It's not my favorite way to tell a story. And then the other thing is that it, it is time consuming to an insane degree. I, I know I've done video editing, so I completely understand. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like that, that is extremely time consuming. And, you know, the idea of on the trail of originally was that it would be kind of like a side project. And, um, this took, uh, I started editing this at the end of October. And I just wrapped what like two weeks ago, um, or a week ago, maybe it's not a, maybe it isn't even full two weeks. So I mean, it was basically like um, three, basically three months of editing, which is a lot of editing for us. We don't, you know, usually a movie is like six to eight weeks where we're in and out of an edit, and um, so this was like a, a very extended edit for me. And there were days, you know, where I was here at the office from like. 7 a.m. till 11 p.m. stuff like that, and it, it a lot of it was because of that style. Like, um, and I brought on an editor assistant at one point who was a buddy of mine who did a lot of videography and editing, and he used to work for like a church and did their their like services or you know like we put them online and stuff, and was good with editing. And I gave it to him, and I was like, I basically gave him. I'd never done this before, but I thought it would work. I gave him a cut that was basically like a cut of on the trail of Bigfoot. So it was, you know, like six, seven minute edits or seven second edits and, um, and stuff like that. And I was like, here's, here's the final cut. Like this is the story's in place. I basically just need you to go through and do the, the like stylized stuff. Just, you know, they, I think he called it sweetening, like sweetening the edit. And, um, after like the first week he gave it back to me, I was like, dude, this is, I, I don't know how to do this. This is insane. <laughs> and I would, I would, try to, I, I would try to explain it. To, I'd be like, well, like someone will say like, um, we'll mention offhandedly, uh, like, a 
an ambulance seeing a UFO. You would smash cut into like an ambulance, into like a close up, like three close ups of some, <laughs> some like ambulance lights spinning, jump out, show a quick cut of a UFO, jump back in. And I realized like in explaining it that way, I, first of all, I don't really know what I'm doing. So I'm trying to explain it to someone else who doesn't know what they're doing. And in the end, it just made more sense for me to just go back to doing it myself, which is why we ended up in a situation where I was here every night till like 11 p.m. There's there's a certain like almost like comedic timing to it. Even though you're not really... Your effect isn't really comedy. It really is like punchline, punchline. And and there are 100% times where I screw it up. Like I, th- I think anyone who actually knows editing when they're watching this will pick it up like when it, when it works and when it doesn't work. Um, and a lot of the times if it didn't work, it was just, I was to a point where I was like, I had to finish this and be done because I, I have other <laughs> stuff to do. So I, um, I did watch a lot of Casey though and, and Peter McKinnon and, and the left coast to kind of pick up on all that stuff. And, and I think that helps. And I, I'm, I like editing like, like this. It's just very time consuming. My, my preferred style is on the trail of Bigfoot where you're, your typical cut is like six six seconds long. You know, like your B-roll is just sort of taking in the landscapes. But this is different too. Like it's not it's not supposed to be like that. This wasn't... On the Trail of Bigfoot, it's supposed to be very much a travelogue. And On the Trail of UFOs is sort of like a travelogue, but it's mashed up with like an investigation into a phenomenon. Right. So it's, it's a little different. And, and also I just wanted it to feel more immediate and of the of the moment and i just didn't think that my traditional sort of editing style would would bring that and also just to keep things interesting we're, if we're doing three or four projects a year it gets really boring if i'm just coming into work you know every okay cuttering it yeah and just doing the same thing over and over and that's like why um i think you mentioned already like the 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 well, you were talking about the style of the episodes themselves, but I think I try to do, we try to do every movie differently too. Like, totally, you know, because otherwise it really does get kind of boring. Like you just feel like you're doing the same stuff. Biggest example of that is Momo. Yeah. I mean, that one's out of everything. Momo is completely different than everything. Yeah. And, um, and that whole thing was like a huge learning curve for all of us. Like everyone involved it's it's um i said recently that ufos is like probably my favorite shoots like just the shoots themselves are probably some of my favorite shoots but momo is like by far the most creatively fulfilling thing that that i've worked on it was also we got to a point where i was like i don't think this is going to be a success (laughs) and i and then i also got to a point where I was like, I don't really care. So like, and I mean, it sucks because to be though. it is. And it, it wasn't like, it was a bomb. It didn't do anything. And, oh, and really? yeah, I mean, it was a huge bomb and it, and it, it's audiences, you know, split as far as like who people either hate it or love it. And, um, and that sucks for a lot of us. Cause you really do like the crew puts so much effort and heart into everything we do which i think is very obvious yeah thank you and and like there's times where like when when something bombs like that we've had off the top of my head we've had three bombs but boggy creek was kind of a bomb people don't really know that 
Um, but the Boggy Creek Monster movie was kind of a kind of tanked. That's interesting because um, those two mirror each other. Yeah. Yeah. And it, and it, what's interesting about that is because of that, I was convinced that like on the trail of Bigfoot was going to be a bomb because the invasion on Chestnut Ridge found an audience on Prime, but on like when it was for sale or whatever, it didn't make anything. And um, same with Boggy and Beast of Whitehall and Minerva were too early in the game for really <clears throat> for me to tell if they were going to be if they were successful based on our current way of doing things like yeah they were they were great because they picked up local press and they sold dvds or whatever but i don't know if today we put those out if they would be considered a success but um yeah i was convinced on the trail of bigfoot was going to be this huge not a huge well we were never concerned about it being a flop because it cost basically cost three grand to make and then there was another additional bit of money that went into like the poster artist and stuff like that um so we didn't think it would lose money but i didn't think it would make that much and um and then it came out and now it's like the biggest thing we've ever done um such a trip yeah and i'm really glad about that too because that that style of filmmaking is what i really like i i like just picking up my camera and going and doing something it's i love making the movies like at Mothman and Terror in the Skies and that kind of stuff. But we put so much time and effort into making sure everything looks really good that it kind of drains the fun out of it in a way for me. Yeah. And, um, I can feel that. Yeah. And like interview setups. Yeah. Interview setups and all that get really exhausting. And I'm, I already really stress with interviews. Um, it's, it's like the most stressful part of filmmaking for me is doing interviews, which is interesting because we shot 29 for on the trailer. <laughs> um, but I, I'll get so stressed out going into it. And then when you're also spending like, I'm not kidding, like a, a, an interview setup can take two hours oh, and, yeah. um, on a movie. And for us, that's like that entire time I'm like freaking out. Like, is this going <laughs> to, this going to look terrible? Like, and, um, and then you put it, and what's funny is you'll put it out and like, no matter how good it looks, you'll still get some person like just leaving an offhanded comment somewhere. Like, why do you shoot this? Why, why is the one <laughs> camera pointed up her nose? And like, you know, like we didn't spend hours trying to figure out how to do it. Right. So. And that's, it's funny to me because most document documentaries of this style mm-hmm. or these topics are shitty. And you, you guys are like f- far and above everything else, pretty much in the industry. Mm, you know you. what I mean? Like you go onto Amazon Prime and you watch anything else on Bigfoot other than, you know, like the high budget TV shows where they're kind of scripting everything. Mm. But you go to like normal documentaries and it's like, I mean, granted, these people are making it on like no money, but mm. there's no comparison in production. Yeah. I mean, a lot of that stuff has to do with the fact that um, I hate everything I do. So, like, <laughs> So like you pick it apart. It's funny because I've watched. It was one of those guys we were talking about. It was like Casey or Peter or, or Levi talking about how they can't. They watch back over it, and all they see are the faults. And so when when you only see the faults, you're you're always trying to improve, right? And um, so there's like a weird masochism involved in in like the way in the way we shoot and you know or make movies, and it's because like I'll. Every single 
thing we do, I pick apart myself. So by the time Momo came out and all of these critics or whatever, you know, we're, we're going off on it. Um, I had already sort of seen a lot of the things that, that people could pick at, you know, so it didn't do me any good. I mean, most, and, and honestly, most of the people that, that didn't like Momo just didn't get it. Like it's right. a weird, it is a weird movie for a weird audience. It's, it's for people like me who, who love seventies movies and love driving movies and love, uh, television, like paranormal television. Lyle's entire sections are just poking fun at paranormal TV, you know? Yep. And then the, the movie, totally the vibe of basically the legend of Boggy Creek. Yeah. And yeah. those type of movies where, you know, it's like, uh, you know, actually, you know what I was thinking when I was watching this? What do you think audiences in the 70s thought when they were watching these things? Because, you know, like the, the acting wasn't good. Yeah. The production wasn't good, but yeah. like there was no... But I don't think... They just I didn't think, expect it, right? Well, I think audiences back then might have been a little easier to scare. <laughs> that's true. Um, and I think because the world, maybe that's because the world has gotten so dark today. Maybe people just aren't as easy to scare. But also, I mean, you've got stuff like Saw out there. you know. And I've never watched any of those. It I happen. haven't either. I can't deal with gore. Um, but It's boring to me. Yeah. But, um, but I think it might have something to do with that because you watch Creature from Black Lake now and I really enjoy that movie. I mean, I love that movie actually, but it's not scary. Like I'm not, I, I hear, or I read articles about people watching the, the uh, Legend of Boggy Creek and like screaming in the theater and stuff. I'm like, what? Like, why? What? <laughs> I just what tweeted that? something about this the other day. All these people, I know you haven't seen it yet, but everybody's like, oh, watching Hellier. I'm totally scared. I'm like, there's nothing scary about it. Or even like go back and watch The Exorcist. Maybe as a kid, but like, and The Exorcist was like high quality. Yeah. I see. I ha- I saw the Exorcist when I was young, when I was like eighteen, mm. and I was tr- and I was like devouring everything film. Um, but I haven't seen it since, so I'm curious now because back then I knew I knew it terrified me. I'm curious if today I would find it scary. You, I I have a feeling just like knowing the mechanics of filmmaking as yeah. well as you do that there that creates some sort of separation. I think at least for me, like not that I'm anywhere near. I just. Basically, just so you know, when I keep referring to video editing, a few years ago, I did 200 days of daily vlogs. Holy crap. That's my only experience. (laughs) But you did it every day? Yeah, it was insane. So like what... Can you tell me real quick? I know this is totally off topic, but like how does... How do you do that? Like what... How does the... When do you edit it? Every... For me, I did it every night. I wouldn't, um, I know nice dad used when he did it, he used to do it in the morning after the day. Mm-hmm. I could not get up early and edit. That was just not me. I, I, at the time I was, I'd go out. Sometimes I'd be filming like drinking and I'd come home and I'd be half drunk and be like, well, I got three hours editing ahead of me and I just do it. Huh. I don't know why it was insane. What, <laughs> did you try that like nice dad style? Like what, how, how did you, that was edit? the inspiration for sure. Okay. It was huh. it was actually a challenge yeah. to myself. Like I I had the converse I had a conversation with a friend, and I kind of like like oh check out this guy like he does this every day and the person was unimpressed. Yeah, and we were like half drunk, so I, I said something like I'm like dude I couldn't do that every day you couldn't do that every day, 
And then for some reason, that just like became like this bug in my head. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to do that every day. And then by the time I got to 200 days, I was like, I am done. What were you shooting with? A little can, a little, a little small cannon. Yeah. Um, I don't remember the, the model anymore. It's like a, a T3I or something? Um, here, let me grab it. Um, what the hell is this called? Oh, G7X. Yeah, I, I'm. See, I'm curious about vlogging. I did it. I I started a, a channel, and it's out there still because I just quit like a year and a half ago. But it's called Small Town Filmmaker, and then I think I only did like seven or eight eight episodes, and it wasn't vlogging. It wasn't like daily at all. I mean, I think I was doing like one episode a week. But even that, I was having a hard time finding the time to to do it, and I really enjoyed doing it, but I it wasn't, you know, like my time making money these days is working on STM. And then when I'm not doing that, I got to spend time with my kid. Not, I have to, I want to spend time with my kid, you know, (laughs) and it's, it's getting, it's getting harder to find time to do filmmaking related stuff unless it's work. So I don't know what that means. Like creatively, I wonder what kind of repercussions yeah, I don't know how Casey Neistat does it, to be honest. Yeah. Well, he's slowed way down, right? Yeah, he's not doing daily anymore, I yeah. don't think. It's been a while. I haven't watched him in a while. <clears throat> I just watched his most recent... I mean, he's so good as a s- storyteller. It's really easy to write off like YouTubers and influ- quote-unquote influencers or whatever. And I kind of do hate the the culture that's grown up around that. But... Right. um. But at the same time, like Casey's such a good storyteller. Like just as someone that tells stories, I'm impressed by how I've he learned does so that. much from yeah, him. yeah. And same with Peter. And also, just like if you're a filmmaker watching that stuff, that stuff really does. Like they, as cheesy as some of it can be, it really does inspire you. Like they'll do they'll do episodes that speak directly to you because they're creators and they've gone through the same stuff you're going through. So, well, I tell people. All the time, if they want to learn how to film and edit video, mm-hmm. vlog every day. It will destroy yeah. you. But when you come out, you, you can't learn that fast any other way. I mean, I wasn't great when I was done, but I learned so much. Did you do anything after that? Video-wise, I did yeah. like one little short thing. And then it's, I just started focusing on podcasting. Body, yeah. Because, I mean... You know, logistically, it's not that different as far as, you know, like cut this part out, scoot this over. But it's so much easier because you're only dealing with like one or two layers. Yeah. (laughs) And you don't have to worry about color, transition of light and all of the, you know, all of the concerns, pacing, visual pacing, make sure you cut at the right moment, L cuts, all of that stuff. What did you listen to podcast wise, like before you got into it? Oh, that's a good question. I don't really remember. Uh, that's a really good question. I think my only experience really had been maybe a couple episodes of Joe Rogan, mm-hmm. um, Nerdist at the time, I think. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Stuff You Should Know. I think those were like my first three, which is funny. I don't listen to any of those three anymore. I I used to listen to Stuff You Should Know. I, I can't remember stuff you should know and stuff they don't want you to know. Mm-hmm. I always I always enjoyed listening to those. Um but I used to listen to podcasts for eight hours out of my day because I worked I worked a medical billing job. So that oh yeah. All that got me through the day was like podcasts and 
Pandora. I was driving a catering van, so that's why I was. Oh I yeah, got into it. I'm do it. Um, but yeah, but I'm I'm really glad though that you you enjoyed on the trailer. That's a big that's a big win. Yeah, there's um, a lot of my notes actually, which we'll probably go into, is a lot of like about phenomena, mm-hmm. and I mean especially you having. I'm using the word loosely, but studied, but like, you know, been involved at least with telling the story of this stuff. You have to have theories. Uh, Oh, about like UFOs and all that. Yeah. I thought, you know, there's so many, I've seen, by the way, I've seen everything you guys have made. So I'm very prepared. There was a few that I was behind. I'm like, Momo was one I hadn't seen. I just watched that a few days ago. Yeah. Um, But I thought maybe we could focus on just, for the sake of our sanity, UFOs and Flatwoods Monster, because I think they kind of go together well. Yeah. I love Flatwoods too. I don't get to talk about that one much. That's another one of the flops, by the way. Really? It's so funny. Everyone, like the ones you've mentioned as a flop, I'm like, I love that one. Yeah. No, Flatwoods was painful for me because I loved it. And when it, when it didn't really take off, I was so disappointed. And, and I mean, that was the thing about Momo that is so disappointing for us. It's not like... It's not the money side of it. I mean, obviously you want to make a living at, at this, so you you want it to do well. But it was that Momo to me was we had found a way to tell a story that hadn't been done before in in movies. Like tell me another movie that uses that device to tell the story. That's yeah, like three things actually, right? Yeah. It's I mean, you've got a you've got a documentary. It's weird. You've got a a television show late night horror host that exists in a fictional world who's also introducing you to a fictional movie that is based on an actual real world event that you learn (laughs) about through a real world documentary. So there's, I mean, it was so exciting to us that we had come up with that and that it, it, you know, when we, we all watched it, everyone thought it worked. We all, and I still think it works, but it was so exciting that we had figured out a way to tell that, that, that none of us could really point to something else and say this, this like does that same same thing, and um, so I think that was like the the hardest thing about Momo not making, not finding its audience at least not yet. It it just went sleeper. up on Prime, yeah, it just went up on Prime, and we've had movies do that, like Invasion on Chestnut Ridge, like you said, didn't find an audience until it went up on Prime. Now it's like a lot of people tell me that's their favorite movie. That's how. That's how Adam Wingard found us was Invasion on Chestnut Ridge. And um and so like <clears throat> it was it was painful when it came out and it didn't do well just because I was like, man, I was really hoping like horror fans would find this and you know, like people that genuinely love horror and and old movies and people that love movies. It's a movie for people that love movies. Have you seen there's a documentary called VHS Lives? Um, I think I've seen parts of it. It's on Prime, isn't it? I was, Is that the one? Yeah, on exactly. Yeah. I was completely unaware of that for anybody listening. It's a it's a documentary about people who love VHS movies. And mm-hmm. I had forgot about how many of those use the term loosely, but B movies, like we were pumping so many of those out in the eighties. Yeah. It was unaware that there was that whole subculture. And it seems to me that subculture would love Momo. Yeah. Because, you know, at least, you know, two thirds of the movie is based on that kind of vibe. And some of them found it, like, you know, when someone that, that was into 
that stuff or is into that like late night horror host or, or that VHS subculture, they, they get it. Cause they'll, they get it. They get the whole thing. And, um, and so that I think eventually it'll find those people, but you know, I thought, you know who I was so pumped up about, uh, Cliff being involved because Cliff is friends with, uh, Bobcat Coldway. And I was like, I was like, dude, you have to give this to Bobcat. I was like, because I I know he would love this, and he sent it to him, and then I never heard anything. So I don't know if you watched it or not, but I I thought like there was there were people that like Adam Wingard watched it and told me he he loved it, and it was super goofy, and he responded to all the stuff I hoped he would. So I think the right people will get it if they watch if they watch the stupid thing. <laughs> What's funny is that when Prime started, it sucked. Mm-hmm. And now it is, it's my favorite because it's a treasure trove now. Yeah. Everything that all these other platforms are ignoring independent film, um, yeah. B movies from the 70s and 80s, um, paranormal documentaries. Yeah. Um, all that stuff is all on Prime. Yeah. And- Prime's, it's a, it's a, it's been amazing for us because I think it's totally, it's the reason we're here. In a lot of ways, um, you know, like as a business, we took off when Video Direct opened, which Video Direct is like their platform for filmmakers. And we don't have to go through distributors or aggregators. We go right to, to Video Direct and post our own content. And then all we have to deal with is Amazon's quality control department. Um, but unfortunately, like since 2007, they've cut our revenue by like 70%. And it, it just keeps keeps getting worse every year. So stifle their own. Yeah, business. it's crazy. But they know they know they can get away with it because no one else is doing what they're doing. So yeah, and, I mean, and they've also seen, yeah. Well, and that's what I was just going to say. They've seen YouTube successfully cut revenue from their creators. That's so fucked <laughs> to an insane degree. So so I mean they're they're aware they can get away with it and. uh so that kind of sucks for us because every year we basically are just trying to make up for the loss of revenue from whatever they've cut, you know, from the year before. And it it's interesting too, because we're in a weird position. We we talk to distributors all the time, you know, and I know a lot of like indie filmmakers, they that's the the end game is like find a distributor. And we talk to distributors all the time. We've been talking to a huge company for months now. Um but like it comes down to what they're what they're offering isn't anywhere near what we can make just doing it ourselves. And right. so so for us, even though they could potentially get us in front of a larger audience, we would be giving up the the money that keeps us alive. So we're weird. Like it's a weird our business model isn't done by anyone else. So I never know how to like what I told the guys at this company is you you have to stop looking at us as this is a, a little like indie filmmaker who made a movie and, and start looking at it as like, we're an independent production house. Like Jason Udis, who uh, co-wrote Momo, him and, and Zach, who's my director of photography, they're like huge horror fans and they love trauma. And they always compare us to, <laughs> to trauma as a, as a, a production house and that we're, we're putting out multiple titles and we've, we're growing this like audience that's sort of self-sustaining. And so that's who I 
whenever I talk to a distributor, I have to tell them up front, like, you, this is how you have to approach us. You can't just say, look, we can offer you an audience because we have an audience and they're extremely supportive and loyal. Like, we just launched a Kickstarter on Thursday last week and we hit 100% of our goal in four days. And it was a massive goal compared to what, what every other year was. So. Yeah, you hit like what seventy percent in the first twenty four hours. Yeah, it was funny though. My wife was having a an absolute panic attack for three days because we've never run a Kickstarter where we didn't hit a hundred percent in the first twelve hours ever. Oh, shit. Every single time we've run a, a Kickstarter, we hit hundred percent. But um, that's because like the first year was six grand, uh, the second year was like twelve, I think, and then it went up to like twenty, and then last year's was like thirty. And this year we asked for 55. So, I mean, it was like a substantial increase over previous years. So I didn't expect us to hit 100%. And for us to hit 100% in three days was pretty impressive. But I mean, the budget on UFOs alone would take up a large chunk of what this, what this campaign brought. <laughs> UFOs was, was a insane, um, undertaking financially. One which hopefully pays off, but we'll we'll see. Well, one of the things about putting out this stuff right now, I think we're starting to see, we kind of touched on this a little bit earlier, but like, I think people are tired of this. You know, we made a joke about it earlier, but you know, like the, all the ghost shows on TV. Yeah. It's, it's, it's night vision and jump scares. Go to a commercial, find out it wasn't anything. Right. And every time they do an EVP, they get something, which is just complete bullshit. Yeah. And we know it's scripted and no, I'm not throwing shade at any of the people involved with that. Good for them to find a way to make a living. Sure. But at the same time, people are, they've got over the entertainment factor. And Mm -hmm. I think people are actually starting to look at the paranormal and the unreal with the real realistic lens in the mainstream. Right. There's always been the subculture, but yeah, I agree actually. And I think that's why, I think that's why we've, found an audience is like that that is our audience and when we, we you know like on the trail of ufos is was meant to be an introductory sort of series like someone who learned about ufos because of the tom DeLong stuff or because it's all over mainstream tv i wanted there to be like a way for that person to come in to the subject learn a bunch about it but also feel like hey there's other people out there like you who who are not insiders who are just learning about this and and here here's like your primer for the whole thing. And at the same time I've been told by a couple of people that the series offers a lot for like people who know everything about UFOs. So right. Yeah, so it, it doesn't know. feel like a you know it's not like the preschool version of of ufology. It doesn't mm-hmm. feel like that. Especially you go into topics like I liked how you started where most people would end. Right. You know, like yeah. here's the current state. Now let's talk about the different forms of this phenomena: abductions, ghost lights, mm-hmm. um, Area 51. Breaking it down like that makes it very interesting because it's like, okay, let's get that off the table. Oops, smack my microphone. <laughs> Obviously, I'm talking with my hands, you know. But let's let's get the current state out of the way so that we can get into the. And I think that's why maybe people who are already familiar with the field, you know, like people like me. Mm-hmm. Who have grown up around it. Like yeah. I just posted a picture on Twitter right before we came on here. My grandfather left these books behind. 
Um, I've mentioned before to people listening to the show that he left like 40 fate magazines, mm-hmm. but he also had all these books on UFOs and there's two classic Adamski books in there. There's a Bud Hopkins book in there. There's a Craig Barker book in there. Complete fiction. Like he has a chapter that takes place from the perspective of a man in black. Mm. He has a, a chapter about Indrid Cold on his spaceship. Hmm. So, I mean, it's, it's just a very unique book in the sense that like the, the blur between reality and, and fiction. I mean, it, there's no line at all. It's all yeah. blur. The whole book is blur. Interesting. But at the same time, you know, I, you have to wonder, is there a little bit of truth in there? Is it all a lie? I mean, he he really, like, in some ways, you, you want to get mad at him, right? Like, you really muddied the water. Right. right. But then I also think about um, Ramsey Dukes and the Charlatan and the Mages. Have you ever read that? No. I recommend that highly. It's it's just an essay. You can find it online for free. It's It's, it's essentially, he talks about the idea of we've always... When facing the unreal, we've always pushed off the charlatan, you know, the hoaxer, the trickster, you know, like you're a yeller. There's one person he uses specifically in there. We've always pushed them off. He says, but what if faking things is one of the necessary steps to open that door? Right. What if Yuri Geller has to fake bending a spoon five times before he can really bend a spoon? <laughs> and what we tend to do, you know, like there's something about that. You have to warm up your belief system almost. Yeah. Right. And so you, then you look at Gray Barker through that context, you know, what if he had to beef up the stories in order for the phenomena to occur more often? What's, I mean, that's definitely ritualism. Oh yeah. Right? You're walking through that process in order to, to, to manifest something you know, potentially at the end of it or at some point in time, you know, that may be unaware to you. And it, it calls to mind just those times when we were kids and we liked to scare and we would rile our friends up in the middle of the woods because we saw a werewolf or we saw some strange light until invariably, whether it's some sort of pareidolia or trick in the mind or whatever it may be or something very real something does occur and you think back to yourself like well i was just i was kidding around how did this all get so out of control and then how did this lead to us all seeing a flashing red light in the middle of the woods Right. I, this happened to me one time <laughs> and it happened several times and uh, I would get bored and I would try to scare friends and we would go through this process. And I think a lot of people can relate to that. And a lot of people can remember being freaked out. And because it was an initiatory process, because it was a process that was co-creative, you can almost say like, well, that wasn't real. I was making that up. But were you, were, were you, were you just sounding the clarion call? Were you just accepting or inviting something very real to happen. You know, a lot of people will refuse to speak about spirits or ghosts or hauntings or the devil because they think even speaking the name will conjure something, will bleed energy and life force and acknowledgement into something that should not be even acknowledged. And so I wonder, is 
Is this all just the unacknowledged that's waiting to be invited in, that's waiting to be awakened? It's like the, one of the great tropes of horror movies is that somebody's joking around about something, but then the thing really exists. That's right. You know, whether it is a, a they're faking around reading an incantation from a book or they're playing a trick on their friend in a graveyard or they're going into a haunted house just scare the girl. But then it's real, you know, like That's that right. it's the door is opened. And I think I mean, there's there's there is some. I think there's there's two ways to look at that, you know, there's the. The thing that we've been talking about over and over again, this idea of co-created reality, you know, that our participation, even if it's on a on a hokey faking level is necessary. But then there's also a fear mongering that perpetuates yeah. that idea of like, yeah. be careful what you play with Very because it's so. just waiting to kill you. Yep. So there's this moralistic aspect to it as well. And then not to say that one's right and the other one's wrong or that either of them are right or either is wrong because none of us have any clue. Right. <laughs> but I think because both of those exist, that's why that idea perpetuates because it's coming at it from two opposing angles. Yeah. How could that idea not continue to exist? Right. I mean, we could be witnessing the process of us trying to internally figure this shit out. Right. Well, you know, I'll, you know the idea of the, the opening the door, too, reminds me of where we started. The idea of the food and the nightmares, right? Well, what if it isn't a nightmare, but it required you eating curry late at night to open that door? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I think... For me, it seems like the world is ripe with these possibilities, but they're a space typically where I, I, tr I try to um, be conservative with my engagement at that level. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to question every action you do. Like, well, uh, right. what if there is a, an ancient God that's waiting for me to put this empty glass right. next yeah. to my cell phone? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, I would, I feel like I'd be on the street in no time at all, like <laughs> only wearing shoes or something and, uh, you know, avoiding cracks in the, in the sidewalk. <laughs> a hat made out of orange peels. Yeah. A hundred percent. Uh, look, I can put them in my eyes. Um, yeah, man, I, I think, you know, but what you're saying resonates in the way that there is a possibility for a great amount of curious curiosity to be unlocked by us just saying yes for us just being brave enough to explore some of these strange countries uh, both internally and externally and understanding that the energy the work the relationships the created the creativity that we put out there could be making larger ramifications on our consensus reality than what we could even imagine. Yeah, we have this whole idea of polarization, political polarization right now, that because people are not living in the same factual um, reality. You know, Correct, like yeah. The, the people used to share facts. We don't share facts anymore. Well, is that a, you know, is, is this idea of 
that happening with the Unreal just spreading itself into our quote unquote reality now? <laughs> you know, that, that this is where yeah. you start to ask questions that nobody has an answer to, but at the same time, like we have to ask them. Yeah. You know, is 100%. that the door that we've opened? <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The possibility seems right there. <laughs> but at the same time, I go back to what I was saying about walking and seeing like this thing that's going on, this coronavirus thing is scary, but everybody out there is in a good mood, at least here. Yeah. That I saw. And I always go back to that in, in times like this, I go, human being is very adaptive. You know, we don't think that we can survive without a clear consensus reality. That it will drive us nuts. We don't know that. Yeah. Maybe maybe it just takes time to adapt to that. Yeah. I hope you're right. You know what I mean? I hope you're right in the, the midst of all this. And that the same reaction that, that you're seeing and that I saw today while walking the dog with the wife too. I hope that translates, you know, and I hope that the... Uh, economic uncertainty is I don't know sort of the fear squelched a little bit in regards to everyone being able to sort of accept this right now as a new reality and and with that bringing some sort of aspect of positivity or gleaming the things that are good about life right now you know I, I hope that folks are able to take this time and and disconnect just a little bit to then look around them and see what's present within their life that that they're really grateful for right and maybe that is just the neighbor like giving you a nod as you're walking by that stuff is so important you know i think in addition to the ability to lose yourself in a lot of great books right mm -hmm. <laughs> well, i think that's why Right now, you know, like, like Hellier took off like a rocket. Yeah. And I think it's because people are entering that adaptive phase. Mm -hmm. Whereas, oh, if, you know, if this stuff that I've been holding on to as quote unquote reality, this, you know, solid, and even science itself, when you start to look at it, like current science is weird, mm -hmm. is strange. String yeah. theory is mind boggling. So weird. So when you start to, I mean, that that was kind of like my entry. I'll I'll, I'll stop putting it in abstract form and I'll, I'll give it from my experience. One of the things that actually convinced me to lean in was my very narrow and probably completely wrong understanding of string, string theory. <laughs> to the idea, the, the basic, to put it in like two sentences, if there is, it's possible that there are more dimensions than four. And that they're existing around us and we are completely unable to perceive them. Then how am I to question the reality of anything? Mm. How do I know that they don't exist in that reality? And then I extended it to think about the infinity of space. If mm. space goes on for infinity or damn near infinity, how do I know that what exists and what doesn't exist? Because my experience and my understanding is so, is this smaller than a grain of sand? Right. So how can I question any of it? Yeah. Because we understand so little of it. Yeah, this is 
that's the space of being comfortable in the humbleness of that, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had a friend, we had this conversation about like the vastness of space and he's like, it terrifies me. And to me, I just think about, maybe I'm weird and I hope I am. I'm proud of the word weird. But <laughs> I think about uh, if, if it's infinity, then everything's possible because it's infinity. Right. It goes on forever, which means that if you actually think about infinity and probability, then that means everything exists. Yeah. Everything. Right. Just maybe not here. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> you know, it's 10 trillion light years away, but it exists because probability, when you take, when you stretch out any probability to infinity, it still comes out existing. And so, so this was sort of the, the way that you dovetailed into all of this, huh? Was yeah. from looking at like some sort of consensus, consensus, consensus scientific understanding of what, uh, what string theory could be and what that could mean. So then portaling that into the understanding of the infinity of space. And then where did that leave you after you got back from infinity? <laughs> well, first it started with synchronicities. I was having strange synchronicities and I started tracking them because I wanted to tell my co-host at the time about them. He's a very um, skeptical person. And I just wanted to say like, hey, okay, here are the strange synchronicities that I've had in the last week. Sure. And there were a lot of them. And then I ended up reading Dr. Kirby Surprise's book, Synchronicity. And in that, he had a very narrow definition of string theory, which I kind of tentatively understood before, but the way he explained it kind of clicked in for me. The idea of like the way we view reality is like that, you know, if we only had two dimensions, a piece of paper, but you know, there's mm -hmm. all this stuff that around exists around that piece of paper. So then I went to the infinities of space. Then I started reading the exegesis of Phil K. Dick, <laughs> <laughs> which got me thinking about time and, you know, the, the idea of time being all, to, all, all of time exists at the same time. Sure. You know, that you can step outside of time. That time is just a linear perception, what we consider time. And then I went to Mothman and I said, okay, <laughs> let me reread. I, I mean, I'd read Mothman prophecies before, but I said, let me reread this. And I read The Silver Bridge and just kind of approached that from this burgeoning perspective of like, okay, what does this what what if I'm considering all of these things and I'm looking at this and Mothman is a particularly interesting case, as you know, because there's no consensus on anything when it comes to Mothman, <laughs> except for red eyes. That's about it. Mm -hmm. So I had to ask myself, okay, well, what how can I how can I explain this? And that's when I came up with this idea, it's a term other people have used probably for a completely different definition, but the idea of weird logic, mm -hmm. the idea that in order to understand the real and the unreal, you have to let go of the rules of the game of the real, that the rules of the unreal, it's, it's like comparing trying to play baseball with football rules. doesn't work. Right. You know, reality has its rules, but the unreal has different rules. It's trickster, you know, it's, it's fluid, it's changing. It's, you know, one time it's a brown feathered man. Next time it's a white feathered flash. 
The next time it's a bird. <laughs> next time it's a man that takes off without flapping his wings. And not even trying to believe all the stories about Mothman, but just to try to be able to digest all the stories of Mothman without thinking all these people are lunatics. Right. And that's what, from there, is where I've really moved. But it had to, I had to move myself to that idea of going, what, what's a possible explanation for this that won't make me lose my mind? <laughs> yeah, right. Did you feel like at first you were compelled to judge kind of the witnesses and the stories related to the Mothman just in particular? And I think I still process? do judge mm-hmm. witnesses in, initially. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if I'll ever I'll learn that. Mm. I, I'm always, there's always a side of me that I try to let go of it and I've, I've gotten pretty good at letting go of it, but there's always a side of me that's looking for the, the snag in their stories. Mm-hmm. Like, mm, that doesn't make so much sense. Right. You know, like the one person that no matter how much I try, I can't believe Woody Derenberger. Mm. I read Visitors from Lanulos and I'm like, every ounce of my being was like, this is complete bullshit. Mm. Because, I mean, it's it's a beautiful story, but it's just, I can't get over it. There's like this part of me that won't let go of it. Maybe with time I will. Yeah. But I just, I can't believe it. It doesn't, right. it doesn't compute. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. I mean, sometimes there's, there's some of those things that are so fantastical, right? That, that it's hard to even put within a frame of reality uh, or, or, or a frame of whatever truth may be. <laughs> well, especially when it's like, there's a mixture of hokiness too, right? Yeah. I think that's the part that makes it, you know, like, and everybody's naked. Right. And they frolic around and you're like, mm, I'm pretty sure that's just a fantasy. Right. Right. Yeah. Or, you know, when, when, uh, the, the visitors are giving you a pancake, you know, like stories like this, where there's that, that there's elements that present themselves that are like, well, that, that's just like bad, like screenplay writing or something. <laughs> yes, like, exactly. what is, what? And then you go, oh, it's a guy who drove around in his truck alone all the time. Yeah. Mm, that's the person that would make up a story like that. Shit. Right. Right. It is, you know, it, I mean, but here's the thing about these experiences. They're strange because sometimes they are a little bit like that seemingly. Yeah. Uh, and, and maybe that is that manifestation of the trickster, right? Right. Like maybe he is going to throw in some pancakes. Maybe he is going to make sure everyone's nude. Or that co-created reality. Those weird hokey elements are the part of that's coming from Woody. Yeah. And the other part right. maybe is not coming from the people from Lanulos. I don't know if you would say Lanuloians. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds right. We just coined that term today. Yeah. <laughs> uh, speaking of synchronicities, I, I teased you when, a long time ago about a synchronicity story that I had to tell you about. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So this is, this is when I was listening to your dispatch episode with Mike Clellan. Hmm. And uh, let's see if I can remember it in the proper order. So one of the things when I first, before I even like changed the name of the show and made it a whole new show, you know, new topic, everything, just everything different, new artwork, new name, everything. One of the things I did was I changed the description of the old show. And I just, 
I had this term in my head, a circle circling within a circle. And it's, it's going back to that idea of hokey and stupid. Like it didn't make sense. It didn't even sound catchy or good, but I made that the description of the show. And I don't know why I just couldn't get it out of my head. Hmm. And I would actually, I'd use it almost like a, a Zen Cohen. Hmm. I would just sit and think about it. Like, what does that mean? You know, what would that look like? What would a circle circling within a circle look like? And I would just think about it with no intention of like getting anywhere, but there, there was some pleasure in me puzzling this unpuzzable thing, un, unanswerable thing. And so I made that kind of the, the description of the show for like a month because I just didn't know what I was doing. And I was like, I was spinning out. I knew I didn't want to do that show anymore. Yeah. And at the same time, all the stuff that I just described was happening, you know, like synchronicities and then moving into string theory and infinity of space and Philip K. Dick, all of that was happening at the same time. So I, as, as I moved into that idea, I said, okay, if I'm going to accept that some of this unreality exists, I have to open myself to the possibility that that means there are things that are bigger than me, you know, I don't mean just Chad, but I mean like bigger than the human individual. Yeah, sure. That there is something bigger, you know, but I didn't want to ascribe it a name. You know, some people would say universe or God or the force. I didn't want to ascribe it any of those things because I didn't, I was just opening myself to the idea of it existing, but I hadn't thought about what it was or what it could be. So I felt like if I gave it a name, like that, then I'd be steering myself in a direction without actually looking at the scenery. Right. I wanted to really, if, you know, if I choose to, if I get to a point where I believe it is God, I want to be able to say that. Not because I chose it at a point when I didn't know what I was talking about, or I want to say I chose it because I reasoned myself there and that I truly believe it. Right. Or if I choose universe or whatever, you know, so it becomes really difficult to interface with that without having a name at all. You know, to be able to call the, that concept, you know, like there's no word for a concept if you don't want to use words, right? <laughs> right. So I started using the term the all. So I was like, you know, it's just, it's the source of everything. It's where, it's where everything comes from. It is everything. It's all of it. I was like, oh, the all. And the more I thought about that idea, the more I was like, sounds really familiar. Is that coming from somewhere? Like, is that like from Dark Crystal or something? You know, it's just something <laughs> I've watched and, you know, like it's just in my head. So I had these two things, like the all and circle within a circle swimming inside of my head when I'm listening to an episode with you and Mike. And you guys started talking about the monad. And I wasn't familiar with the term. And so while I was listening, grabbed my phone. I'm like, what the heck is a monad? I was, you know, honestly, I was thinking it was going to be like uh, the statues on Easter Island. Mm. Isn't that what like a monad sounds like a monolith of some sort, right? Sure. So I look it up and here I am looking at a circle within a circle. And it just like, I kind of froze and I'm like, holy shit, that's a circle within a circle. And then I read the description and it is a symbol for the all. And I was like, what the <laughs> fuck just happened? 
what was that? And I mean, I've been having a lot of strange synchronicities, but like for something like that, it didn't even feel like a synchronicity. It just felt like things connecting or colliding all at once. Yeah, sure. In a way that's didn't feel like coincidence, right? Right. So I'm blown away. I keep listening to the episode. I'm, I have actually, I'm, I'm, I was walking around the house. I had my AirPods in. So I'm like walking around the house and I walk into the kitchen. And as I'm walking into the kitchen, I'm at my mother's house. I'm walking into her kitchen and Mike is talking about the story that someone had related to him. So the exact quote he said, and this is him quoting someone else. While I was driving, listening to the interview with your voice, I saw an owl. Those were the exact words. And when I heard those words, right in front of me on the counter was a brown porcelain owl. <laughs> and I, I, I'm looking at it. I'm going, am I, <laughs> am I really looking at an owl while he's talking about somebody seeing an owl while they hear his voice? And I'm hearing his voice. Like just like this, like whole. So I grab my phone. I'm like, no one is going to believe this. I need to take a picture of this little thing. But like, it wasn't bright enough in the room. So like, I turned around to turn on the light switch, and there's like this bar where the light switch is. Um, you know, like a flat surface, not like a sure. metal bar. On the bar in front of the light switch to turn on the light for the room is a stuffed white owl. <laughs> Some someone is listening to this right now and also saying now, and someone else is listening to it and going bullshit, which is wonderful that both are happening at the same time. Right. And I think right after that is when I I DM'd you on Twitter. I was like, uh, "Weird shit just happened while I was listening to your episode." Yeah, <laughs> it's you know it's weird, man. I mean, like podcasts are strange. There's a strange magic to all of it. You mm -hmm. know, I mean. That story you told right there is is surreal. And that type of story seems to happen all the time to people. You know, uh, talk about the beginning of Hellier. That's that's how it happened. The string of synchronicities. And right. for whatever reason, um, Euphemet is responsible for a lot of strange interconnected activity, you know. And I think that is a real gift that I don't know how to quantify yet. And maybe I never will be able to fully respect it or put it in its place. But for whatever reason, there there seems to be something to it. And so I'm glad you reached out at that point in time uh, because it's awesome talking to you. What point do you think they stop becoming synchronicities and they become a pattern? You know what I mean? Mm. Yeah. Like if... It, for example, I had I had 10 synchronicities happen in one day. And I, to the point where I just started expecting these things to happen. And I started going places. I'd be with people and they would see them happen. Yeah. And like I, I saw I was with somebody and they saw six synchronicities happen in front of them. Yeah. For me. I don't know. You know, what's interesting is that uh, maybe my non-dual Kabbalist friends would suggest that synchronicities are not always representative of meaning anything in particular. Right. But are perhaps a reminder of the nature of the universe, the nature mm -hmm. of reality presenting itself, and that it's a nudge. It's a cosmic wink. It's a, co a cosmic nudge 
And it's meant to sort of break you open a bit. It's meant to get you to explore. It's meant for you to kind of lose your shit for a moment. So you can go, oh yeah, right. It Like we live in magic. Okay. I remember now. You know? <laughs> because whatever whatever reason it works. Oh yeah. Well, I think one of the things, mistakes people make with synchronicity is they think that it purposefully means something, pre-existing means. But if you actually look at people who discuss synchronicities, go back to Jung, who coined the term. Synchronicity is a meaningful coincidence. So what that means is two things happen. I just had one. Did you? Sorry to interrupt. I just had no, one. No, interrupt. Tell me. I was just, based on your story of, uh, of, of your circle talk there, I just picked up a book. I just noticed it on my shelf, uh, Mandala Symbolism um, by Jung. And I was just flipping through it for the first time, as you mentioned his name. So, That's so funny because one of the things that I have in my notebook that I was from that episode with Mike Clone that I didn't mention was about the mandalas and young. Because you guys described it as a journey into self, right? It's a representative of a journey into the self. And after I moved past circle within circle, the way I described the show was I was using the unreal for uh, to achieve a philosophical mindset for the journey into the self. Hmm. <laughs> so unreal. Man. I love when this stuff happens. I really do. Unreal. But they're meaningful coincidences, right? You know, they just collide. And what that means is that they there are two things that weren't connected before. They're not causally connected, but then they happen. They collide. The meaning comes from us. That's part of the process of the synchronicity is the meaning did not exist before the collision. Right. We have the opportunity to ascribe the meaning to it. That is the purpose of it. Yeah. And like, for example, for example, I was in Michael's one time and this is an art supply store and I'm walking around and I'm just kind of like, you know, like you're drifting and then you realize like, Oh, I'm, completely wandering. <laughs> My mind is somewhere yeah. else. <laughs> right. And I'm doing that. And I'm walking down this aisle and I go, where am I going? And then I hear a woman literally instantly say, Chad over here. Now she was talking to a child, but literally I said, where am I going? <laughs> and a woman answered me. <laughs> <laughs> Are you my mom? What's going on? <laughs> and like, you know, that those two things were unrelated. They don't mean anything, but whatever I take out of that moment, which from that moment, what I took from it is exactly what you said about the dual cobbles. Like, it's just a reminder, like of, you know, the, of the unreal going, we're still here. Yeah. It's beautiful, man. It's beautiful. It's a great way to approach life. I think no matter what it means or what it can mean, I think it's fun. <laughs> Oh yeah. <laughs> and it's fun to share these stories and it's fun to share these discoveries and it's fun to see where these things lead to and the people that we're connected to by this string of uncertainty. You know, uh I think once one decides to pay attention to these things and and uh, perhaps even follow them a little bit, following the breadcrumbs a little bit isn't that bad of an idea I don't think. Um just don't expect you're going to find anything on the other side all the time. Right. Um, and don't but the expect potential. to be real. Yeah. 
Yeah. Sometimes it is a trick. You got to, that trickster thing you brought up is so important. I would actually suggest to listeners to do something very strange for some of them. Although if they're listening to this show, it probably wouldn't be strange for them because if they're interested in this topic, (laughs) just track your synchronicities for a week. Just write down every time a synchronicity happens. You'll be surprised. Yeah, it's kind of like, um, um, it's very meaningful, right? It can be very meaningful in the abstract, but also how it relates to you yourself and your daily life. And I think once you perhaps see a bunch of them on a single sheet of paper and you go, oh my God, look what happened this week. That at least like wakens you up to the potentiality of this happening all the time to you and and maybe not being acknowledged. And I think maybe what we're saying is that whatever this nudge is, is probably mostly a positive thing, it seems. And that this is sort of paying respect to that. It's it's awakening it and it's creating an opportunity for you to engage it in 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 a very in a very real way. How do you define that something's a synchronicity personally? Um just just a coincidence that's a little like a quick coincidence. You know, something that just is a little bit too out of the ordinary, um, something that feels designed, something that feels like a nudge. It feels a synchronicity feels like someone else in the conversation feels like a, a guiding hand, you know, the situation that we just had a quick synchronicity. I pick up, I pick up a book by Jung. I open it I open it and write as I do, you say his name and refer to his work. And why did I pick up that one book on the shelf in the myriad of books that I had? And there it was. Um, Of course, it was the train of thought. It was the line of conversation we were having. But it's almost like synchronicities are like sort of weird spark notes. If people remember those, (laughs) they're like the liner notes or something on an album where it, you know, just gives you a little bit of a nudge and and a hint to, to, to reinforce whatever the, the artistic drive is behind uh, the form of communication. Right. I feel like it enhances your experiences in life or it can't. Can it also lead you down a path where you're completely confused and wondering what any of this means? A hundred percent for sure. But I think in small quotients, it, you know, kind of like I said, it, it can make the experience of life a little bit more fun. Yeah, there's a, a certain whimsical feeling that comes with it. You know, like I, I don't remember what it was. I had one a couple of days ago and it was just, I laughed for five minutes. And it's like, <laughs> maybe that was the purpose of that synchronicity. It was like, dude, he needs a laugh. Yeah. <laughs> you know, cause it's, it's people who don't believe that synchronicities are anything. Well, the, the argument usually is like, well, you know, the, the, they'll find a way to connect those two things. But the thing is, it's not really about the connection between the two things. It's about the timing. Yeah. 
it's not that these two things are so completely unrelated that it's not possible that they they could collide. It's that it happens in that second. You know, like it's not the fact that it's completely unreasonable to think that you own a book about Jung. It's not completely unreasonable to expect me to say Jung. But it is shockingly powerful that you held the book while I said it. That it happened in that second. Yeah. You know, if you would, look, I was just reading Jung yesterday. That's not as big of a deal, is it? No. No. Yeah, again, that timing of it all. That call and response, that conversation. That's what it means to me. Yeah. I like the way you described it, of feeling like there was somebody else in the conversation. It's a really good way to say that. For me, it seems to go in waves. I don't know about you, but like I'll have a lot of them and then none for a while. Yeah, same. Same here. To the point where it can occasionally be a relief and then sometimes it can be kind of sad when when they go away. I think that there's a um, seemingly a frequency, you know, I think mystics will describe this, right? Like a frequency that when you're tapped in, you know, watch out because here they come, you know, Mm. you've dialed in to, uh, to that call sign. (laughs) I mean, remember having to try to like find, you know, being in a different town and trying to find coast to coast AM on AM radio and just just scanning and tracking and just trying to dial it right in. And then you'd find it for, for a little bit and you'd be good to go until you drive over the hill and then you're, you know, you're out of range again or you got to find the different station. And I feel that synchronicities, but also just the phenomenon in general, yeah. sort of plays by these rules. Um, and I think that's a healthy thing. You know, I think that's... It's okay to to lose yourself in the base consensus reality when that needs to happen, and to to know that there is a greater connection there as well, and that you can access it once you sort of drum up that conversation or you know sort of pay it the respects due to get that attention from it as well. And we've seen through you know. Um, rites and rituals folks doing very very methodical uh executions to find that connection to at will you know to to manifest this connection whatever it is and uh i think when we see it fade in and fade out it probably just means that we haven't been we haven't been on the right frequency for it it seems like that's something that's innate in the human being is that the longer something occurs, um, the less meaningful and well, just it, everything falls apart in general. Yeah. Just, you know, there's a reason that a new season of stranger things comes out and we binge it, but there's nobody binging law and order. <laughs> Nobody's binging 24 seasons of a TV show. You can't sustain something that long. You're not capable. Maybe you'll watch an episode or two a day, but you're not going through the, you know, like the eight hours a day, like people when they actually do a binge of a TV show. Yeah. 
is not sustainable. And I think that synchronicities and the frequency, maybe the frequency burns you out if you stay in it for too long. Man, you just pulled this all into the Netflix era is what you've done here. <laughs> Very brilliant. From from uh, Gray Barker to Netflix. That'll be the new yeah. slogan for the show. <laughs> <laughs> works. The kids will love it. Yeah, it works. <laughs> we have to do this again because... Absolutely. I enjoy the hell out of it. Yeah. And I'm down in Southern California often. Once we get out of this uh, crazy state of quarantine, I will surely be back uh, down. Well, you're in the Bay Area. I mean, yeah. San Jose. That's, uh, that's on my list to get to very soon. So the next time I'm in the Bay Area, I'll give you a shout as well. And maybe we can do one of these in person. Absolutely. Have and some food. But we're going to, we'll close out the episode, but let's chat a little bit afterwards. But for everybody listening, please tell them where they can find you, what you'd like them to check out and so forth. Yeah, you can find uh, everything of my podcast, Euphemet, at euphemet.com. That's E-U-P-H-O-M-E-T. And you can find Euphemet on social media at Euphemet. Same spelling, same everything else on all of these social channels. And you can follow me at It's Jim Perry on social as well. And check it out. If you like this show, you'll like my show. It's an audio documentary that features stories from folks living a life in the unknown. So that's it. And just to like give them something to think about as we go out, do you have like a brief word of wisdom for them? Yeah, I think I'd say be open to the human possibility of love. Yeah, especially right now. <laughs>